Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. I'm going to take a few minutes tonight. Um, um, I want to give you one scripture at the beginning, then, then I'm going to show you a, 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 um, a clip for a movie that's about to come out later this month. The scripture I want to give you is in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. And it says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, or in other words, if because of the stuff that happened with Adam that we got involved with and the stuff that we have done that death reigned, it says these words, which are fascinating, because Beth, Beth um, quoted these exact words, and, and Chris also talked some about this while I was away the other week. How much more, okay, how much more, I want you to remember that phrase, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus? So we've actually been given a call and an opportunity to reign in life through the one man Christ Jesus in a how much more experience of the gospel. Now when you ask the question, are you living in a how much more experience in your supposed, let's call it Christianity, okay? So, um, I, I became aware um, when I was away in America last week um, of a new movie that's coming out starring Ewan McGregor, and it's called Last Days in the Desert. So I want to show you the movie trailer, and then um, I want to read you, to start tonight, um, an interview with Ewan McGregor um, by Relevant magazine that, that will set us up for what we want to say tonight. So this, this is the trailer for the movie. Have you been out here, holy man? Since the last full moon, maybe a little longer. The desert is ruthless. It strips you of your vanities, your illusions. Gives you the opportunity to see yourself for who you are. You people are never alone. Some spirit or something is always with you. I have water for you here, Yeshua. That's what your mother calls you, isn't it? Your father. Everything matters more to him than you. My father loves me. He loves himself only. Oh, what anger. You are your father's son. You are an easy target. Because you're weak. Your good intentions will be wasted here. They don't need us to ruin their lives. They'll do that all by themselves. <laughs> These things he expects of you. Do you think anyone will care? A man of a thousand years from now. Have you found what you were looking for? No, but I'll stay as long as it takes. You think you're his only child? There are others. No, there is only me. 
right. I want to watch it. <laughs> okay, so um, this was an interview that was um, done with Ewan McGregor uh, about this upcoming movie, Last Days in the Desert. So I want to read it to you. I think it's, it's well worth the read, okay? We sat down with Ewan McGregor to talk about his groundbreaking take on the 40-day temptation of Jesus and the experience of getting inside the head of history's most famous foes. I started reading the script and the first three or four pages were just a man walking in the desert with no reference made as to where it is or when it is or who it is, Ewan McGregor recalls. The script described a man sleeping under a bush, shading himself from the sun, walking endlessly through the landscape. The man is alone in the desert. But who is he and why he's there aren't clear. The script for the film called Last Days in the Desert, director Rodrigo Garcia had emailed it to McGregor with the proviso that it was unlikely he would want to do the film. It was too risky. McGregor had just met Garcia over the Christmas holidays after being introduced by mutual friend Emmanuel Lubetsky, who is the cinematographer of The Revenant and Birdman and Gravity. He didn't know what Garcia meant by risky, but being an actor who likes challenges, he was intrigued. There was something beautiful, poetic, and unusual about the writing, McGregor says. His curiosity built as he read the script's opening pages. The unidentified man walks across a wide open desert and sees another man walking toward him in the deep distance. As he gets closer and closer, the man begins to recognize that the other man is actually himself. As I was reading this, I was like, wow, what the f is going on? McGregor says, when the two men meet face to face, the other man speaks first. Above his first line of dialogue, the script said, Lucifer. And I thought, oh my God, now I know who's in the desert. McGregor took the part. McGregor is not a religious man, as he describes it. The extent of his faith experience was a brief religious moment when he was about 14 back in Scotland. <clears throat> it didn't leave any mark on me, except that I was sort of glad it was brief, he says. <laughs> the son of two teachers who themselves weren't really religious, <clears throat> McGregor's childhood experience of church mostly consisted of special occasions related to school or attending Sunday school, because it was just something to do. <clears throat> Though he formerly had a bit of an indie bad boy reputation and battled alcoholism, the 45-year-old actor is today regarded as one of Hollywood's genuine good guys. McGregor is also a family man. He's been married to French production designer Yves Mavrakis since 1995, and they're raising their four daughters in their home in Los Angeles. McGregor says his family life inspired him in the making of last days, especially the Jewish faith of his wife. In preparing for the film, he says he drew more on experiences of her Judaism than his experiences with Christianity. Observing men praying in the synagogues, feeling the things they were praying, and the way they prayed helped him to get inside of the mind of the Jewish Jesus who prayed a lot in the desert. Last Days in the Desert is a minimalist art house Jesus film. Closer to Pierre Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew than Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. With relatively little dialogue 
Action over words always, as Jesus says in the film. And almost no special effects. This quiet film is a far cry from the recent spate of CGI-heavy Bible blockbusters like Exodus, Gods and Kings, or Noah. But in its haunting, speculative portrait of the struggles and temptations of Jesus, at the end of his 40-day period of fasting, last days lingers in ways those epics do not. The 98-minute movie which premiered at the 2015 Sundance Film Festival narrates an extra-biblical episode in the 40 days in the desert period of the life of Christ. The story opens with a hungry, bedraggled Yeshua, that's the Jewish name for Jesus, shivering alone in the desert, weak and afraid. We see him pray in desperation for clarity and direction. Father, where are you? Father, speak to me. Before stumbling across a nomadic family trying to survive in the desert. The family comprised of a world-worn father, a dying mother, and a restless adolescent son who is a bit dysfunctional, particularly in the father-son relationship. Much of the film finds Yeshua quietly trying to untangle the knot of the family's complex dynamic. Though the plot is invented, it comes off as thematically and somewhat theologically harmonious with what Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11 Mark 1 verse 12 through 13 and Luke 4 verse 1 through 13 say about this pivotal preparatory chapter in Jesus' story. It's a story about temptation with Satan, played also by McGregor, a constant pestering presence seeking to derail the mission of Jesus before it begins. It's a story about the humanity of Christ who fasted and was hungry Spent the night in the desert and was cold. Saw people suffer and wept. And it's also a story about Jesus finding clarity about his identity and mission. Praying and preparing for the road to Calvary by grasping his identity as the Son of God. The film presents the family's father-son dynamic as something Yeshua relates to deeply. In the boy's frustrations with feeling drawn to ambition, but also devoted to his father's will, Jesus sees a bit of himself. The father-son motive helped McGregor himself, a father and a son, enter into the character of Jesus as he prepared to shoot the film. I started reading books about Jesus and tried to find him that way, but the books were trying to disprove the idea of him being the son of God, and that was not helpful to me, he says. I was playing the Son of God, a man whose father was God. This was a man who had trouble communicating with his father and wanted answers about his calling from his father, who is asking him to do this thing to ultimately die a painful death. McGregor stopped reading books about Jesus and started thinking of him as a man, albeit a man with a divine heritage. I was trying to find the man who was a preacher, a rabbi, a teacher, a holy man, whose father is God. There were many sides to him, says McGregor, who liked that the film showed the strength, but also the searching, doubting, and frailty of the divine human Christ. I thought it was interesting, this idea of a young preacher who isn't absolutely self-assured on everything. I like that he had moments of uncertainty. The human side of Jesus is indeed a focal point of last days. 
though not in as jarring a sacrilegious way as, say, Martin Scorsese's controversial The Last Temptation of Christ, but Garcia certainly foregrounds the fleshliness of Jesus and the world in which he walks. It's a world of dirt and decaying animals, a place where rocks get in shoes, as happens to Yeshua. And unexpected expulsions of wind are funny. They use another word there. Yes, this is a movie where Jesus laughs at that. It's a world of work. Jesus puts his carpentry skills to use. And one of sleep and sexuality and slimy bugs. And it's a world where death is an inescapable part of life. Last days doesn't shy away from the breakability of mortal bodies. Underscored in a haunting series of shots showing the death and cremation of a main character... One minute the character is alive and here, the next, ashes. McGregor's Jesus is keenly aware of his mortality, struggling with his finitude as he fasts in the desert, even as the devil tempts him to transcend such limitations. Unlike so many other Jesus movies, Last Days isn't so much an Easter film as it is a Lenten one. The 40 days of fasting and discipline in Lent have for centuries helped Christians identify with Christ in the desert, finding beauty in the sparse, simple landscapes of barren deserts, both physical and spiritual. Deserts in the Bible are rarely enjoyable places, but they are the places where God brings his people to teach them, to refine them and prepare them. Think of the wilderness wanderings of Israel for 40 years prior to entering the promised land. Deserts are places of vulnerability and yet spiritual illumination, which is one of the things McGregor enjoyed most about shooting the last days. There was something beautiful about making the film. There were no cell signals out there. We were completely cut off just out there in the desert, says McGregor, who rode his motorcycle three hours from his LA house to the desert and back each of the five weeks of the shooting of the film. In contrast to the chaos and overstimulation of L.A. sprawl, the isolation of the desert was inviting and replenishing for McGregor. He was very simple and pure, he says. Jesus isn't the only star of the 40-day story in the Bible, of course. Satan gets some serious screen time, too. The Jesus Devil showdown in the desert takes on a particularly interesting tone in last days. However, in that McGregor plays both characters. Always wearing the same costume, but with slightly differing accessories, Satan wears an earring and rings, vain guy that he is. Jesus and his tempter are intentionally portrayed as mirror images, hinting at the fact that temptation is often self-inflicted and one's own ambition and insecurity is often the most insidious enemy. I suppose they are versions of the same guy, says McGregor, who, in spite of his good guy image, Obi-Wan, Star Wars, admits the role of Satan came a little bit more naturally than did Jesus. Some of the best moments in last days come in the back and forth dialogues between Yeshua and Lucifer, a forsaken son and a fallen angel. McGregor rehearsed these scenes with his friend and longtime stunt double, Nash Edgerton, who reads Satan's lines when McGregor played Jesus and vice versa. The resulting McGregor to McGregor conversations are strangely compelling and often very thought provoking. Audiences might be surprised to see Lucifer portrayed with a semblance of empathy, 
a fallen angel who was once in God's presence but is now cut off and bitter, looking at favoured son Jesus with disdain and jealousy, like the older brother in the prodigal son parable. There is a fraternal nature to their relationship. McGregor says of the film, film's Jesus Devil Dynamic, the devil's job is to try to get Jesus to doubt himself and distrust his father. Convincing him that he doesn't have to do his father's bidding, that he doesn't have to die, but of course has a different idea. But Jesus, of course, has a different idea. When it came time to assume the iconic posture of Christ on the cross, yes, the film has a crucifixion scene, McGregor expected to have some sort of transcendent experience or religious connection. Yet when the cameras were rolling and he saw crew members and wires all around him as he hung on the cross, it all felt disappointingly mundane. There was something ordinary about it that was pushing against my hopes and expectations, he says. Adding that he was frustrated and annoyed that he couldn't just have his moment on the cross alone, apart from all the cameras and crew. That's such a stupid thing to say, but it's how I felt. I wasn't having the experience that I wanted to have on the cross because, of course, it was just another shot in a movie. During a 20-minute period of downtime, as they waited for the light to change, the crew asked McGregor if he wanted to get down from the cross. He said no. And as he stayed on the cross, he realized everyone behind him had disappeared and the crew had suddenly become very quiet. As they filmed the shot, McGregor found a bit of what he'd been looking for. I felt a connection in that moment, he said. It was quite special. In that shot, beautifully framed by Lebetsky, with surprising angles and subtlety, McGregor's Jesus stares out at the desert from which he had come. It's an ambiguous gaze. What does he see in the desolation? Is there anything there? What is he thinking? The blank slate of that gaze is fitting for the film as a whole. What do you see when we look at the desert? What do we see? Do we see desolation and the absence of God? Or do we see something beautiful and sacred? The anachronistic final shot of the film poses this question in a provocative way. But it's also a question audiences are prompted to ask of Jesus. How do we see him? Is the Christ of this film a God-man with divine purpose and power? A mysterious sage with an unnecessary death wish? A bohemian carpenter who talks in riddles and parables? Or maybe we see him the way McGregor first encountered him on the pages of the script. A desert wanderer who shivers and sunburns, hungers and thirsts, hopes and fears just like any of us. A man so normal and nondescript we almost miss him in the desert. To some, a mirage but to some, the saviour of the world. The question that poses is, could it be that the greatest devil we will ever face is the devil of self? Who do we meet in the major and minor deserts of our life? Who is it that we're facing and do we superimpose upon this nondescript, invisible character who can't be seen because it's not really a person, but but the temptations and the pressures and and the challenges are real, do do we superimpose upon that image the face of some horned beast 
or some fallen angels? Or, or do we, like in this movie, find that in that greatest moment of temptation, if we really look who it is who stands in front of us, who's causing us the greatest challenge is ourself. Who is that voice telling you either you're God's greatest gift to humanity ever or you're worthless and useless? Who's the voice that feeds your pride and ego with imaginations of your own grandeur or fuels your raging lack of self-esteem and self-loathing and condemnation? Who's the one that tells you if you're really loved, you'll never be hurt or that your hurts can never be healed? Who's the one who locks you into the grey twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat? Too afraid to decide to and too afraid to decide not to. Is it true what it said in the movie that one's own ambition and insecurity are often the most insidious enemy? It's interesting in the Bible that Jesus said to one of his disciples, Peter, in Luke 22 and verse 31, Simon, this was before his name was changed, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired or asked to sift you as wheat. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But then in Matthew 16 verse 23 after this great event where evidently identity is very important because it deals with who do people say that I the son of man am and who do you say that I am and then Jesus saying to Peter you're Peter I'm going to build my church all about identity but in verse 23 of that same chapter Jesus turned to Peter and said get behind me Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Matthew sixteen twenty-three. Peter, get behind me, Satan. Could Jesus have been saying to Peter in that earlier event recorded in Luke, your own actions and character and personality are going to sift you like wheat. We feel much more comfortable making that an external proposition with the physical devil than we do facing the devil of self. And so coming back to Luke 22 verse 32, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail you. What? In the process of facing you, that you will have faith that will not fail because you'll be willing to meet yourself face to face and that you will overcome. There are some interesting issues in the Bible that we overlook and are not often told. The word devil is the Greek word diabolos, but the Greek word diabolos is not describing a character, it's describing an event. The word diabolos means slanderous or slanderer. So when the Bible uses the word devil, it's just as easy in the Greek to use the term slanderer when the slanderer, the one who speaks against you, turns up. So when Jesus met the devil in the 
desert, you have to ask the question, I think there's a real devil personally, but you have to ask the question, which devil was it that Jesus was facing? And is that the same devil that we meet in our desert? in our times of frustration, in our times of disillusionment, disappointment, when we're wrestling with all kinds of issues. The word Satan in the Bible means adversary. So Satan doesn't just mean a personality or a character, it more describes what this thing or who this thing is. This thing is an adversary. Adversary is an enemy who works against you. Is it possible that Peter was his own Satan? Is it possible that Peter was his own devil? That Peter was slanderous? That Peter was an adversary to himself? Isn't it fascinating that when Peter was challenged as to whether he was a follower of Jesus, he completely denied that he'd ever known Jesus. It all was still this issue of identity. Let me give you one other one. This devil Satan is also called in, in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser. These are all interrelated words. The word accuser comes from the Greek word kategoros, which is the word from which we get our English to categorize. Can you see to categorize, to slander, to be adversarial are all connected together. Therefore, I propose to you, it's not as far-fetched as some of you may think in the context of what is the Satan we face? What is the devil we face? Is it some external character that is so destructive to our lives or is it part of us that we, by the grace of God in Christ, have to face and ultimately leave our desert in the power of the Spirit. Now some of you will be so determined to preserve the identity of a real devil that you won't even give two minutes to think about this, which I think is sad if the whole intention is, I'm gonna keep the devil real, you're not taking my devil away from me. As I've already said, I actually do believe there is a person, but I don't think he's the problem. It's interesting, challenging how quickly we can leap from seeing a glimpse of who the real Jesus is. Matthew 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. To being Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. It seems that it or his, whichever you want it to be, greatest effort is located on getting us to define our identity in ways that are destructive to our how much more potential? This whole challenge is focused on your identity. And it's your identity that holds the key to your how much more potential. It's who you think you are and who you think you have made to be that holds the key. The whole issue of Jesus in the desert was a battle for his identity. The adversarial challenge in the biblical account of Jesus' encounter in the desert consisted of three temptations at the end of the 40 wilderness days, all of which were related to Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, 
In other words, if I can disrupt your identity, if I can cloud your identity, if I can get you locked into an identity that was never meant to be God's more than enough identity for you, then I have defeated you and you will never become who you were meant to become. Jesus could have jumped off the temple and angels caught him. He could have turned the stone to bread. He could have bowed down to Satan and received the kingdoms of the world in the easy way. He could have done all that, but in doing that, his identity would have been destroyed by his own actions, so he could never have been a savior to the world. I tell you tonight that what the devil is after is your identity. But I also propose to you that the devil or the Satan or the accuser that is after your identity may well be you. One of the greater lessons of the account of Jesus' temptations then in the desert, if not the greatest, is the need to resolve the challenge of discovering our God-given identity. Now listen to this, this is very, very important. Our lives are formed by so many influences, experiences and messages. That, form what is, that forms what is known as our world view, how you see the world around you, everything. It forms what is known as our world view, that we tend to develop, that, it, that, that form, what is known as our world view, that we tend to develop coping mechanisms to alleviate the residual senses and feelings deposited in us by our life experiences. You may not realize it, but everything that you are doing and everything you do, if you have not found your identity, is a coping mechanism designed to alleviate the feelings and the stress. Those of you who were abused have developed coping mechanisms. And you know that you are not free because you are still haunted by the issues of identity, how you were valued or not valued, how you valued yourself or didn't value yourself. People from a broken home who said, mum and dad probably split because I was not a good enough son or I was not a good enough daughter. So our worldview develops coping mechanisms just to alleviate somehow the, religious, the residual senses and feelings deposited in us by those life experiences. These are often very complex pieces of psychological engineering, brilliantly constructed by the mind, driven more by survival instincts than a hope for today and a vision for tomorrow. Sad to say, so many of us in here tonight, if I were to go around, are driven by survival instincts. Not a hope for today, and a vision for tomorrow. If I can just get through that thing that's always there, that, that sense that's never far away, that the moment we find ourselves in the desert, lonely, alone, challenged, things are not quite going right, it's dry, it's dusty, and we're struggling, those things come back again to us, and we fight them and we struggle them because it's like looking at ourselves and we are in the desert having that battle all over again, adversarial, slanderous, accusing. See, our perceived identity is shaped by these things, which are often in conflict with our true identity. 
What's interesting about this journey is that ultimately Jesus emerges from the desert. And when he emerges from the desert, Luke 4 records and says, he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, a piece of scripture, and he stood up in the synagogue and And after facing himself, after all the issues of his identity, is God really my father? Am I deserted? Who am I? He comes out of that desert and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I know that he has anointed me. I know that now coming out of me is some good news. I I know what's coming out of me is is a sense of freedom that I can share with others. I know what's coming out of me is, is a recovery. It's sight for blind people. It's life. It's help. It's hope. He emerged from all this with a different power in his spirit that allowed him to open a scroll that with all its powerful declarations of true identity, finished in its original form in the book of Isaiah chapter 61 with vengeance and judgment. You see, if we don't come out of this with the right identity, we can be in a meeting that makes us feel fabulous and our mood is altered and the moment we leave the vengeance and judgment from that unresolved conflict of the Satan, the devil of our own lives comes back and answers and so we have to go back for another fix another mood altering experience which might be church or whatever and for some people it becomes drugs and sex and rock and roll or whatever all the mood altering because we can talk about stuff the issue is has that battle been resolved have we left our desert in the power of a different spirit another spirit Because with all those powerful declinations, you know, he's anointed me to preach good news, he's to open the eyes, to to, to release captives. The original version finished with vengeance and judgment, the day of vengeance of the Lord our God. And yet what happened is that he, Jesus, was now able to roll the scroll up and to shut the book at the place of favor, not the place of vengeance. See, when you've resolved this challenge, this battle in your desert, the scroll that represents your life gets rolled up when you reach the place of favor. And freedom and release becomes your portion from that day. It becomes a how much more experience. God doesn't want you to have a this is what is experience and hopefully I'll survive it and get by he wants you to have a how much more experience it's connected to your identity it's connected to your wilderness it's connected to your encounter with your devil with your Satan that can be resolved when you understand the identity that you have is not the one that life has served you up but it's the identity that you have been given in Christ. Remember I said at the very beginning how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. From our wildernesses God expects us to come out and reign in life. But if we stay in the desert of our experiences, we will never be free of the torments 
of our own devil. So God wants you to come out and close the book at the place of favor and not vengeance. And I invite you to do that tonight. Let's bow your heads with me just for one moment. Just the very essence that Christ returned from the desert is, is, is good because there's some of you who think, will I ever, will I ever, ever, ever get out of this desert? Will I ever get away from these feelings? Will, will, I, ever, will I ever find healing for this pain? There's hope in Christ for you tonight. Part of what Jesus was doing was establishing the fact that you can walk from your desert in the power of the same spirit with which Jesus walked from his desert, from his wilderness. And you can declare, favor is on my life. It brings change. It brings hope. It brings a future. And it's the point at which you know, like Jesus found, God is my Father. I am his beloved Son. And from here on out, life and favor is my portion. I'd like, I'd like to pray over you just, just for one minute. If you'd like to be included in that prayer, if you'd like to say, I'm taking the invitation, I'm coming out of the desert, I'm coming into a new spirit, I'm coming into the place of favor from all the stuff of my past. I want you just, while every head is bowed and every eye closed, I want you to stand to your feet right where you are. Because I believe this is important. See, what I want you to understand is Jesus started where most of us finish. Most of us finish with the increasing burdens of life and the unresolved conflicts and issues. And we go to our graves, sadly, still bearing the pains and the wounds. But Jesus started where we usually finish. So that he could finish what we need to start. To finish that desert thing and say favor on you, life on you, value on you, hope on you, worth on you, shame off you. And I'm believing that for you tonight. I want you just to open your heart. I'm going to pray for you right now, Father, in Jesus' name, for every one who has stood here in this place making a declaration that they are receiving the invitation to come out of the desert in the power of a new spirit because of the Father's love for them in the same way as the Father's love for you and to receive that same anointing that came upon you to say, now the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I can close Close the book at favor and not at vengeance. For everyone who's declaring that tonight, I release that favor in your name, Jesus. I release that health. I release that wholeness. I speak a release over their life for everything of the past, behaviors and conflicts and issues that have been unresolved right now. I pray they be resolved in the name of Jesus right now. 
that everything that has tied any of these people to issues of the past, that now they've been unable to separate them from, I declare that what comes by your spirit that you call the anointing breaks the yoke or the thing that ties us to those issues of the past in Jesus' name, that we are forgiven and we can forgive. That favor is on our life tonight in Jesus' name. So I release a spirit of faith. I release a spirit of hope. I release a spirit of acceptance, of belonging, and a knowing that we have found home and it's safe because we're no longer facing that adversary that's tormented us for so long, but now we have been set free by your abundant provision of grace into a how much more experience. I pray the how much more experience on every life in here tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. That for every blessing we'll say, ha, how much more? But the measure never ends. I release it, Father, with great compassion of heart because we understand the the, the pains, the hurts, the difficulties. I thank you that your love and grace is working right now by your spirit. Make the words that I am speaking to be flesh and to be life. Word incarnate, God made flesh, glory revealed in every life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate your kindness and patience and uh, every blessing to you. And uh, we'll be back again Wednesday and Saturday. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.